today we're going to be in Psalm 107 because we're between books. And when we do that, I get to teach about things that are talking to me. And if they're talking to me, I trust that they're going to be meeting the same needs in you because I go through a lot of stuff because you're going through stuff. You know, the pastors are not immune to real life. We're real people as pastors. So when God's talking to me, I think, boy, this is neat. Now this psalm here, Psalm 107, it is a psalm for people who are thinking that God can't really help them. And I, I understand that I'm not talking to unbelievers. We all believe in Jesus. But I am talking to believers who live in the real world. And we know that God is great in the theological world. God beats the devil 10 times out of 10 in the theological world. Hands down, there's no problem there. But in the real world, stuff happens, right? You're lost, and you run out of food and water, and you're going to die. Or you're a prisoner in a death camp. You're in hundred-foot waves out on the God-forsaken ocean. Or maybe you're stuck in Afghanistan, and the last plane out just left. You face real problems. You need real solutions. Can God deal with real life? This is a psalm for people in trouble who find out they need God. So here's what it says in Psalm 107. We're going to take it in sections. It begins, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered out of the lands from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Now, here's an interesting situation where you think you really need a place to live. You need the land to dwell in. But what's really true is that you need God. See, here's a command to praise the Lord for his goodness and his loving kindness. And this is what the psalm is about. God's goodness and his loving kindness working in the real world where stuff happens. Now, the redeemed of the Lord are God's people who sinned against him to the point where God kicked them out of their inheritance, scattered them among the nations for their disobedience and rebellion and wickedness. They lost their material inheritance that God gave to them. It's not that bad because you can make a living for yourself anywhere if you have to, right? 
and you need food and shelter and clothing and a job. And so you can live after losing your land, right? But here's the real problem. If you lose your relationship with God, you will be lost forever. Israel got kicked out of the land because they wanted to be like all the other nations. They became like all the other nations. But here's this covenant that God gave them, a relationship that makes them Jewish. And if they lose that essential Jewishness, they will be lost forever. So even as God exiled Israel, spread them among the nations, he also kept them as a people. He kept them. And not only that, he redeemed them and brought them back into their land. So here's thanksgiving to God because God preserved the people. And you don't need the material blessings of God so much as you need God to keep you and to preserve you as his people. So then in verse 4 it says, They wandered in the wilderness in a desolate way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them, then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. And he led them forth by the right way that they might go to a city for a dwelling place. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Now, you might call this section, you don't need satisfaction, you need God. Here's a group of people about to die in a harsh wilderness while they're trying to get to an inhabited city. This is what they're looking for. It's actually a city that people inhabit. They're on their way, but they can't get there. They've never been there before. They've only heard about it. Now, you know, no sat-navs. Nothing to tell you where you are. How do you get to this place? Well, they find a map. Somebody gives them directions. But maybe they're like me. Maybe they're directionally challenged and they're reading that map upside down and they're not doing that good. They're lost. Their directions are failing them. Not only that, they brought supplies. They thought they had enough. Babe, we're going to make it. Trust me. But now they've run out of food and water. They're not going to make it. And they're overwhelmed. They're going to die. They're going to die. So right here, in the middle of nowhere, and we're going to die, what can God do in this situation? Well, they pray anyway. And you can imagine how they pray. You know, they're right on the edge. They're going to die. And 
They go, God, I don't want to die. Please help me. And then God answers their prayer. And he saves them out of their completely messed up situation. There they are, lost, and not a single soul knows where they are. Nobody's going to go out there and find them. But God helps them. And you know how he helps them? One of those guys feels like, you know what? I think I know where to go. I think I know how to get there. And the rest of them say, well, if we die, we die, so we're going with you. So they got this little bit of hope. And the guy goes, I'm pretty sure this is it. And they get there. And they know this was not an accident. God led us here. Now, my question is, what are they doing there in the first place? What made them think, we're going to go to another city and what? A place we've never been to before. Why are they going there? And the answer is in verse 9. He satisfies the longing soul, the hungry soul. They're dissatisfied. Where they're at, it's just not happening. They're dissatisfied, and they think, we got to start over again. What we're doing right now is not happening. And maybe what we need to go do is go to a whole new place, start over again, and maybe that will be it. Maybe in a new city where nobody knows me, I can start over again. All right? These people knew about God. But they didn't pray, God, what do I do in my situation? They just did what they thought was best. And they didn't expect God's goodness and loving kindness to do anything, or else they would have asked him, you know what I mean? And then they found out, I need God more than I need food and water in good directions. I need goodness and satisfaction, and only God gives that. So I need a new start with God. Verse 10, those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, bound in affliction and irons, because they rebelled against the words of God and despised the counsel of the Most High. Therefore, he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down, and there was none to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and broke their chains in pieces. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men, for he has broken the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron in two. Now, this is talking about people who want to see things happen in the real world. And we see them in prison. Bricks, bars, and real chains that go clink. And they've tried to get out, but even if they could get out, they'd have to get out of the bars, and if they could do that, they'd have to get past 
the jailer. You know, think about somebody who's like six by six. And if you got past him, it would be a miracle, let alone the chains, the bars, the walls, whatever. Why are they in prison? They're in prison because they said God is not real. They knew his word. They rebelled against the words of God. They said, no way. I'm not going to do this. This is a bunch of superstition to frighten women and children. And it's not real. And I don't have to be bound by this. I'm going to do what I see is right. I'm rational. So I'm throwing the Bible away. I don't care. That's tough, isn't it? Well, you notice it's God that humbled them? In verse 12, he brought down their heart with labor. You know what? He busted them. They got caught doing whatever it is they were doing because they're rough and they're tough. And this is the real world. So it's take care of yourself first, pal. Look out for number one. So what did they do? Probably something that you're not supposed to do, that God says don't do. So scam, lie, steal, rob, oppress, something, because you're big and tough. You make things happen in the real world until somebody bigger and tougher catches up to you. And then there you are in prison. And they make you do hard labor. See that pile of dirt? I want you to move it over here. And when you get done, I want you to move that pile of dirt back to there. So enough of this, and you get exhausted. And you trip, and you fall. And you say, help. And the jailer says, I don't care. So there you are, stuck, so desperate that this person actually does what they swore they would never do, and that is pray and say, God, I can't even get up. I'm exhausted. I'm so beat. I'm in a mess. I'm in a mess so bad I'll never get out. I'm dead. Would you please help me? And then God hears their prayer and has mercy on them. Yeah, but wait a minute. I'm in prison. Bars. Steel. Brick. But, you know, God is not limited the way we're limited. Do you know what he does in a case like this? And there's, there's really many examples of this in the Bible. There's Joseph in an Egyptian prison. There's uh, Jehoiachin in a Babylonian prison for 37 years. There's Manasseh in an Assyrian prison. But you know what happens? God busts them out. That's the right word to use because he breaks the bars of iron and shackles and all the power. So either he makes somebody change their mind and say, hey, I'll just have mercy on them and throw them out of here. He can do that. Or he changes rulers. 
This guy dies. The new guy goes, ah, let him go. Who cares? But he gets him out of there. And now, now they understand mercy. Before, they didn't care. And then God had mercy on them, and they go, oh, you know what? The mercy of God is worth everything. And so, now these tough men give thanks to the Lord, because he was tougher than them. And he broke them. And he made them understand mercy, and then he broke them out of prison. And so these guys have learned that if you need something to happen in the real world, you actually need God. So, this next one I found really the most interesting. Verse 17. Fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities, were afflicted. Their soul abhorred all manner of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. This is about how you think you can solve your own problems, but you really need God to identify the real problem and then fix you. So it's about fools. But fools in the Bible are not stupid people. Fools can actually be educated and razor sharp in their intellect. But in the Bible, a fool is a moral fool who's a moron because they throw out what God says is right and wrong. This is wrong. Don't do this. This is right. Do this. But they say, nah. They reject what God's view of the problem is. Being a conflict with him and you want to do what's right, then you will live right. They go, no, I know what my problem is. I'm going to throw out this relationship with God jazz and I'm going to deal directly what, what I think my problems are. And it's not much but I'm going to deal with my problem. These people are following what they sincerely believe is going to lead to their advantage which is what everybody does, right? I don't want to do things that I know are going to mess my life up. I want to enhance my life. This is going to enhance my life. This is the good stuff. This is the bad stuff over here. I'm going to stay away from this. So what do you do when you pursue things that lead to your own happiness? It can be a lot of different things. It could be that they pursue 
sensuality and feeling good because that's good. Nobody pursues sensuality because it's bad. So it could be sexual relationships that God forbids, like homosexuality or pansexuality, sex with everybody, sex with anything. Or it could be just make your gender what you think it ought to be. In other words, there's something really wrong about me. I am in the wrong gender body for my true gender identity. So I'm going to adjust that and I'm going to make everything line up and then I'm going to be happy. But you notice it's, I am diagnosing the problem and I'm going to fix it. And you know, everything else is happening. It's one, two, three. These things right here, once we adjust them, everything's great. So another thing it could be is maybe an indulgence in something. Too much of something. I say, no, I am going to stop this. And then my life will be corrected. Now, you know, some people focus in on harsh treatment of the body to deal with the issue. In an eating disorder, gaining weight is the enemy. That makes food the enemy. But then, you know, you say, I've got an iron will in this. I am going to deal with the problem. And then you slip and you binge. That's okay. Got an iron will. I'm going to purge. And so you go down this road of, I'm going to control things. I am going to make things happen. I am going to solve the problem. You know, I looked up the word anorexia nervosa, or the phrase, and I found it was coined in 1873. That's not a new problem. And I wonder if that's being spoken about right here. Just a possibility because whatever they did, they abhorred all manner of food. And this is one of the things that happens with an eating disorder. Food is the enemy. And so whatever it is, whatever indulgence or harsh treatment of the body it is, you develop a mental attitude that ends up destroying the body. And that's what's happening here. Fools say, you know what? What God says is not relevant. I know what my problem is. I'm going to fix it. But guess what? The cure becomes worse than the affliction. And these people are actually afflicting their own bodies. And they can't eat. It's an attitude that you get into, but you can't get out of because you're sinning against yourself and you cannot solve sin apart from God. All you can do is make it worse, right to the point of death. And these people are going, I'm stuck in a vortex of doom going this way, and I can't stop myself. And they get to this point where they think, 
I don't want to die. And again, they do the thing they thought they would never do, and that is God. I have totally wrecked myself. I am so gone. God, will you save me? And that's where God does two things. One, he comes into their life and he saves them. Isn't that interesting? It's called a crisis. It's a turning point. It's this crucial crossroads where you have to make a decision. Is it going to be death or life? And you have to decide. And they go, I want to live. I don't want to die. Oh, what do you know? God says, good, we can work with that. We're working with that. And it says, he saved them out of all their distresses. So they went through the crisis. And it was just like that. And God says, okay, I'll save you. But then after crisis, he does the second thing. And that is process. Process. And that is, there's six verbs in this section that are in the imperfect tense. And that means it views an action with a beginning, but not with an end. It's an ongoing thing. All right? Don't you find it interesting that once you get saved, it's not, and they lived happily ever after? like it works in Cinderella. Crisis! The shoe goes on the foot. It's over. Let's get in the, you know, the carriage and ride off into the sunset. But you never see the rest of it. Like, is Cinderella a good cook? <laughs> she knows how to keep the floors clean. We've all seen that. But don't they have any fights about which station they're going to watch or which this toast is terrible but there's a process some people don't want that process when it comes to salvation they just want to be boom i'm perfect but the reality of life is we have to live and it's an ongoing work that god is doing in our lives now God saves by crisis, and he also saves by process. Now, look, in verse 20, it says, he sent his word. And that means he continually sends his word. And he continually heals them. And he continually delivers them from their destructions. Okay, there's a process going on here. You get into this process by learning to think badly. You get out of this situation by learning to think rightly. And therefore, God sends his word. And so part of the process is receiving that word continually that God is sending continually. 
It's kind of like the radio. Those waves are going all the time, but you've got to turn on the receiver. Click. And then you're receiving. So now God is continually sending his word, and these people are continually receiving it, and then God is continually healing them. Now what happens if they make a mistake in the middle of all this? Does this mean, oh no, I'm not saved? No. It means you've got to get back to receiving that word again, and then God will continually heal. Yeah, but I'm not perfect yet. Well, it's going to be okay. Don't worry about it. You get to be imperfect. And God still loves you, and he's still saving you. You know, it's, we stop going the wrong way that is messing up our bodies. It actually says in Hebrews, make straight paths to your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint. So if you get into the right path, your lame limbs will actually restore and recover and get strong again instead of God saying, okay, I have to pull that one off. Are you sure you want to keep doing this? Okay. Are we done yet? Oh, you want to go the right way. Good. I'm glad. I didn't want to pulverize you. Behold the kindness and the severity of God. Okay, now you're going the right way. Look at that. You're going the right way and you're making right paths and what is lame is now being healed. So it also says here in verse 21 that men would give thanks continually. Here's a continual process of identifying what good things God is doing and then responding to God by giving him thanks. That is part of a godly lifestyle, is to stop, observe, and give thanks to God because he's doing good stuff. It's the first step towards God. It's also the first step away from God if you don't give thanks because ungodly people Never give God thanks. Not for the food, the clothing, the beds, the house, the car, the job. Nothing. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way it's supposed to work. If anything happened, it's like, what are you doing, God? Falling down on the job. You're on probation. We can fire you, you know. We can go to Molech. So, He says, let them look out for what good God is doing and acknowledge that. And then it says, let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving. Let them continually do this. Be involved with the worship of God. We're supposed to give time and attention to this and practice this. And it says, Keep on declaring his works with rejoicing. Giving a testimony. Being a witness. Offering evidence of the fact that God is good and that he loves with everlasting love. Bearing witness to God. That's part of the solution. 
So, here are people who say, you know what? This is my problem and I'm going to fix it. And they're wrong. Because whatever problem they had, it's really minuscule in comparison to the real problem that they have no relationship with God. They're not receiving anything from God. They are dead. And when they fix the big problem, that relationship with God, God takes care of all the other stuff that bugs them. He says, you know what? It's not that big a deal. <laughs> you and me, that's a big deal. And now that we've got this fixed, now everything else in life is going to flow from this essential relationship. So you know, before, their life was about them. My situation, my problem, and now it's all about God. And it's better that way. Verse 23, those who go down to the sea in ships who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commands and raises the stormy wind which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens, they go down to the depths, their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. Then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Then they're glad because they're quiet. So he guides them to their desired haven. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt him also in the assembly of the people and praise him in the company of the elders." You know, sailors are professional seamen. They do this for a living. They know what their business is, and they know that you don't really negotiate with nature. You just try to accommodate nature and, and coexist the best you can, but you can't really tell the rain where to go. There's nothing you can do about that. that the ocean is an act of God. You know what that means? That's a, an insurance term, which means you can't foresee it, you can't do anything about it when it happens. We don't cover those, says the insurance company. Well, these guys, these professionals who know what they're doing are in a situation way over their heads. These 100-foot waves, they're going to die. See? Now, you think, what can God do in the midst of an act of God? There's a question for you. Well, we already know. I mean, we've seen it happen, of course, not when this was written, but in the Gospels. You know, the disciples wake Jesus up and say, you might as well be awake when we're all going to die. What do you mean sleeping through this? But you know, Jonah did the same thing. All the seamen think they're going to die, and they wake everybody up so they can start praying. And they find Jonah asleep down there. They go, what do you think you're doing? Call on the name of your God. What's going on? And he says, well, you have to throw me overboard. 
Sorry. They go, what? And they finally say, we'd rather live than die. Sorry. <laughs> Throw them overboard. We go, wow, this is scary. What can God do in an act of God? Well, he does another act of God. So the psalmist urges these men to exalt him in the assembly of the people, out and out. What are you doing, you rough and tough seamen? Arr, matey. And all that. What are you doing, you big tough guy with anchors tattooed on each of your Popeye forearms, you know? You lubbers. Well, I'm praising God because God saved me out of an act of God. Now, look at this in verse 33. He turns rivers into a wilderness and the water springs into dry ground, a fruitful land into barrenness for the wickedness of those who dwell in it. He turns a wilderness into pools of water and dry land into water springs. There he makes the hungry dwell, that they may establish a city for a dwelling place and sow fields and plant vineyards that they may yield a fruitful harvest. He also blesses them and they multiply greatly and he does not let their cattle decrease. When they're diminished and brought low, through oppression, affliction, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and causes them to wander in the wilderness where there's no way. Yet he sets the poor on high, far from affliction, and makes their families like a flock. The righteous see it and rejoice, and all iniquity stops its mouth. Whoever is wise will observe these things, and they will understand the loving kindness of the Lord. Now this last section really tells us that there's only one constant in life, and that's God. Because everything else is variable. So that river that's there, that may not be there forever. What? Oh yeah, they can do all sorts of stuff. Do you know that the Nile River flowed through Africa for thousands of years? And it always brought down the silt from upstream. And of course, it floods at a certain time of the year. It deposits the sediment. And then that enriches the soil and you can farm. Right along the edge of the Nile, people have said that the Nile is Egypt. Wherever there's no Nile, there's there's no Egypt because it's wilderness. But along the Nile, there is the sediment that comes down every year, and then you can farm in that. Well, they built a dam on the Nile, and they killed the Nile. So they changed the topography of their own land. And God can change the fruitfulness of a land and totally trash it. He can do the other way around. When the Jews started buying land in Israel, the Arabs sold it because it wasn't worth anything. It's just marshy, malaria-infested swamps, and it's just, I don't care. You want to buy it? I'll make some money off of this. So they started buying it, and then they did stuff to it. 
So they planted trees and drained the swamps, enriched the soil, planted crops, restored the land, and the Arabs started going, what? Land that was desolate for centuries is now filling the world with fruit? But see, God can do that. There are no constants in life. Nothing is going to stay the same way forever. It was there before, and now it's gone. So, for the humble, God can change a wilderness into a luxuriant farming community. Princes, he can sit right in the dust, live like tramps. So, all through life, you don't need this changing, mutating, everything is up in the air. He says, nope, you need God. So, the big takeaway from this is that God belongs in life. You need to have God in your life. And there's no place where the Lord doesn't belong. Like you could say, well, you know, like we're used to thinking, theologically speaking, again, he, he arm wrestles the devil and he wins 10 times out of 10. But God couldn't do anything here because it's my job. And God isn't supposed to be on my job. Or God doesn't work in my school. But there's no place where God can't bless. And another thing to think about is every one of these accounts really happened. We don't have names and, and dates and figures and all that kind of thing, but this isn't made-up stuff. This is real accounts of real things that happened God really saves. And the interesting thing is it's so real life. They're thinking, ah, why pray to God about satisfaction? You need a new start. Let's go, uh, go to a new city, and for sure something's going to happen right. So that's just the way we think. And they think, well, God's not going to work in a storm. God's not going to break me out of prison. I need help with this thing that I can't get out of. I mean, what's God going to do? They find out every time. He can do something. Now, you know what I think is the, the coolest? You never read here about God yelling at them just before he saves them. Like, God, we're thirsty and hungry and we're going to die. Oh, so you're calling on me now, are you? I could have helped you before, but now you're about to die, and now you're calling on me. Well, I don't think so. You know, have, have you ever had God treat you like that? I've been desperate and on the floor, and God has never, ever done that to me. And he never will. Because he's gracious and compassionate. Those two words are always used to describe God and nobody else. In the whole Old Testament, gracious and compassionate only apply to God because he alone 
is good. Just think about the best person you've ever known. God makes them look like, you know, somebody wicked. Darth Vader, the emperor. I don't know. Sauron, who dwells in Mordor. But that's the nicest person you know. And next to God, it's like fangs. Eats babies. God is gracious and compassionate. And you call on him, and he's not going to just go, you stupid jerk. It's only been 5,000 times you've prayed to me about this. I'm so tired of this. No, he just says, come here. I love you. And he helps. Isn't that fabulous? So, God belongs in life because he is already there. Isn't that crazy? All these people are kind of taking care of business and trying to make themselves happy and stuff, and God's already there. And finally, when they get down to it, he's still right there. He never went anywhere because he's with us. So let's say today when you walked in, you were unsatisfied. And there's something in your life that's just bugging the ever-living daylights out of you. And it's been going on and on and on and on. And it drives you nuts because you can't do anything about it. And it makes you miserable. You're unsatisfied. Well, what this psalm says is that this is not for you to diagnose. You're not supposed to try to figure out what your big problem is and then try to fix it. Because you don't know what your problem is. But what it says in Psalm 139 is, Search me, O God, and try my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. So you come to God, you say, you know what, God? I am so uptight, I could chew nails. But you know what my big problem is. Show me what my big problem is. You, you fix me. <laughs> fix me, because I'm yours. And you know that God will actually diagnose your problem? And he'll show you what it is, and he will fix it. And in the meantime, don't worry about the process. You know, if it takes a long time to really fix you, who cares? I mean, if God is eventually going to fix everything, then it doesn't really matter how, how long it takes to get there. You're not going to get yourself there. So you don't have to put pressure on yourself and say, come on, you got to try harder. you got to do better. It's like, if I could do better, then Jesus died for nothing. But I will let you fix me, however you want to do that, and I want to cooperate with what you got in mind. So I'm just going to relax and enjoy you. 
You work this stuff out in me, and I'm going to enjoy you. Now, you know why God doesn't just make us perfect kaboom like that? Because what's really going to fix our lives is relationship with Him. And you don't get a relationship kaboom like that. Ever. You got to develop that relationship and get to know somebody. So you don't just look across the room into the eyes of this stranger and you go, wow, she's the one. Right, you do that. You go, no, I'm not. Get out of here. Get away from me. Who are you? That is never going to happen. But if you get to know somebody, you realize, oh my goodness, you are the one. And you know, we're developing our relationship with God. How developed is your relationship? Well, that's part of the process. The better you know Him, the more fun it's going to be. And you know what? This is an encouragement to me, and I'm sure it is to you, that you can pray no matter what. You can pray about anything, no matter what. And you might think, well, pfft, there's nothing in the Bible about helping me, you know, finish my schoolwork. But it is. It's right here. Impossible. Act of God. I'm going to die. That sounds like university to me. But so what? So what? God's with you. So you can pray about stuff that you go, this is impossible. Prayer is for the helpless. That's what prayer is for, not for the slightly competent. <laughs> prayer is for the completely helpless, and you get to pray. You know, God says, you're going to seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And that's the point that each one of these people comes to. They're not just seeking God a little bit, like God bless mom, God bless dad, God bless my new start in this place that I'm going to look for. Bless our little sea voyage. Bless Sparky and Spiffy here. They're seeking God with everything they got. Yes, I know. God! And what do you know? God says, I'm right here. I'll help you. But isn't that the secret? When you search for God with all your heart. Pray for it. God can do anything because he's listening to you. You need God. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that you are who you are.
and that you're with each one of us. And just this morning, Lord, we want to lift up those situations to you right now that are really out of our control. The things we, we need that we're not doing very well in. Can we take a minute and just pray and ask for help? Just open it up for a minute. Go ahead and pray. Thank you, Lord, that we can call out to you and pray. And you know the desires of our hearts. We need wisdom, how to lead our lives. We need help in school. We need new places to live. We need jobs. We want our families to know you. Some of us are sick and we need to be healed. Others of us have family members who are sick. Lord, these things we cannot overcome, but we look to you and lift them all up to you. We praise you that you are compassionate, that you're gracious. We want to commit ourselves into your hand. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.